Hello there, dear listeners. Mickey here, a voice from the past. Yuel approached me a few weeks ago, letting me know that he was planning on taking a hiatus from the podcast and asked that I record a brief intro before suggesting an episode that I really liked uh, that we would then re-release. So I'm doing that here. The episode that I have nominated as, if not my favorite in my era of the podcast, but one of my favorites, is episode 27, Against Mindfulness. I'll explain in a little bit why I picked that. But before doing that, this is, after all, two psychologists for beers. It's just me here alone in my office. I don't have a beer. It's only a five-minute little intro that I'll be recording. But in the spirit of the podcast, I poured myself a little shot of mezcal. Uh, this is Oaxacan mezcal called uh, Verde Momento. Um, and uh, I'm sure it'll be delicious. In fact, I'll shoot it right now. I mean, you're supposed to sip mezcal, but I'm a, I'm a heathen. I'm going to shoot it, and then we will, we will get started. Cheers, everyone. Ooh, that definitely burns. So before I kind of get into the reasons for nominating this specific episode, I wanted to kind of end things a little bit. Uh, I know Yoel said uh, the podcast is going on a brief hiatus, which means it might start up in a few months. Or who knows what the future will bring, and perhaps there'll be some new creation of his. Uh, it's not clear what will happen with this podcast. So I wanted to reflect a little on the podcast, and maybe I'll start by just thanking people. Um, I was on the podcast for, I believe it was three years. Um, I think during my time, we, we cracked one million listens, which is, uh, for me, quite an accomplishment. Um and uh, I'm just thankful to all of you listeners for sticking with us for all this time and for all the support we have received over the years. I want to especially thank uh, all the guests we've had over the years during my incarnation of the podcast, especially towards the latter uh, part of my, uh, my tenure. We had many, many guests uh, and interviews, uh, too many of them, in fact, a number. But I just want to thank the people who were return guests, and I hope I'm not missing anyone. So I want to thank Paul Bloom, who was on the podcast quite a few times. Elizabeth Page Gould, who was also on quite a few times, and a close friend of mine. Ted Slingerland was on a couple of times, and I especially liked his second one where he talked about his wonderful book called Drunk. And then I also want to thank Ann Wilson, who was such an incredible guest. And... Um, uh, I promise Anne did not put me up to this, but if anyone is looking for a podcast host, I could not think of a better co-host uh, than Anne Wilson. She's just so so articulate and thoughtful and nuanced uh, and willing to kind of get in there. But by giving her so much attention, perhaps I'm not giving enough attention to everyone else. So anyhow, thank you all for being uh, on the podcast uh, and, and for making the podcast what it is. I also want to thank uh, Very Bad Wizards, uh, I know we kind of had a bit of a feud with them in the first year, a fake feud, pretend feud. I, I want to thank them because truly, without them feuding with us and without them mentioning our podcast, our little podcast, on their podcast, we would not have had nearly as many listeners as we did have. We were lucky that they mentioned us, and within the first episode, we had a healthy 
number of listeners, nothing close to what Very Bad Wizards gets, of course, but uh, it, it, it far surpassed what we expected. So I want to thank them, uh, David Pizarro and Pamela Summers, uh, for being good sports, uh, and I really enjoyed the episode we had with them as well. So uh, without further ado, why did I pick the Against Mindfulness episode? There, there really were quite a few that I could have picked. Um, I think Yoel and I both liked one, our, one of our first episodes uh, called uh, When the Replication Crisis Gets Personal. That's really early days. And that was also a favorite of mine where Yoel and I kind of described how the replication crisis affected our day-to-day lives and, and what it meant for us. So that was uh, clearly one that, that, that resonated with me a lot. There was another episode called Against Experiments, where we read an interesting book about uh, the problems with experimentation in social psychology. And I felt that one changed the way I think about science and about experiments specifically. So that was uh, radically influential in my own thinking. But I nominate Against Mindfulness, Against, uh, against Mindfulness, uh, which is episode number 27, because um, I feel this was a, an exercise that I engaged in where I was playing devil's advocate, trying to mount what I thought, at least at the time, were the, uh, the sharpest critiques against mindfulness. So this was not a fair episode. This was not an episode where I took a balanced approach and looked at the pros and cons, but simply criticized. And... In the process of me creating the episode, doing the research to, that went into the episode, I felt that I self-radicalized. Uh, I didn't necessarily have these opinions before doing all this research, but in the process of doing the research and then recording the podcast and then seeing how it was, it was received, I became convinced by my own arguments. And let me add, unfair arguments, because they were not balanced. Uh, this episode got me in a little bit of trouble because one of my colleagues, who I respect immensely, uh, Professor Zindel Siegel, listened to it and had his entire lab listen to it, and he took me to task about it a little bit, but of course we patched it up, and in fact we're co-mentoring a student right now. So all is good. Um, this is one where I kind of really stuck my neck out, and uh, I hope the arguments still hold. I hope it resonates with you. Um, so enjoy the episode, and thank you again for sticking with us for all these years. Uh, without you, the listener, uh, it would just be us talking into the void. So thank you very much and hope to connect with you one day soon. Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mick Inslicht. Mickey, how are you today? I'm doing very, very well. Um, and, uh, you know, before we get heated and crazy, uh, I was told today that you are not going to make your own party. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I was going to pitch this a little differently, as now you can come to my party. But yeah, this is... Um, one in a long line of scheduling-related fuck-ups that I've perpetrated in my life. I have a very specific disability when it comes to dates, which I'm just like generally terrible with, which, by the way, is why I don't really sleep well during my teaching semester, because I have this ongoing nagging fear that I've screwed up a date somehow and that it's going to like blow up on me like I've you know, put the midterm exam on the wrong day and forgotten about it or something like that. And the thing is, that's not an irrational fear, because I do 
uh, routinely do stuff like this. So in the current case, what I did was I scheduled my own party. Your tenure party. My tenure party, yeah. So like we want to, uh, Erica Carlson and uh, Spike Lee and I, uh, we, we all got tenure recently and we wanted to get together and have some people over to my place to celebrate that. Um, and so there was some back and forth about the date and we wanted to make sure the most people could make it, et cetera. Um, so anyway, we ended up picking a date that we thought worked for everybody, but it turns out it's not going to work for me because I am actually out of town on that day, my own party. So yeah, it was pretty brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm actually happy because, uh, well, as you know, and our listeners know, I enjoy parties and I wasn't going to be able to make it because, uh, well, I'm going to be away next week and going to Montreal. Uh, so now hopefully I can make your tenure party. Uh, and, you know, so not only do I like parties, but I hear I'm like good at parties. Oh, yeah. You you bring the party. It could almost <laughs> be said. Yeah. So so that's right. So that's the uh, the silver lining here is that the party is going to be moved to a date where you can come. And, you know, listeners, if you're in Toronto in August and you want to come to my tenure party. I don't know. Maybe maybe you can maybe you can stop by. Drop us a line. Yeah, rooftop patio uh, with a great view. We've discussed this, and it's a deck, not a patio. <laughs> we'll have beer and perhaps other things. Yeah, fun times. Anyhow, um, speaking of beer, uh, let's discuss what we're drinking today. So I was on beer duty, and we actually are drinking a quality beer here for the first round, which is not really thanks to me. It's uh, thanks to my buddy Dylan, who brought these beers over uh, when he was over a, a week or two ago, and then they didn't end up getting drunk, and they stayed in my fridge, and, and now we're enjoying them. So this is from Burdock Brewery, which is a microbrewery here in Toronto, um, and I'm drinking the, it's just called the IPA. And it is as described in IPA, and it's quite good. And that'd be strange if it was like a uh, like an imperial stout, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I'm drinking uh, a something called Nula Nula, uh, which is a dry hopped sour. Um, I have not tasted. I'll try that right now. Yeah, try it right now. Oh my god, this is delicious. Yeah, it's exactly the sort of beer you like. Oh my god, this is. Like it's got a hint of apricot, I think. And this is fantastic. This might, might be one of the better sours I've had in a long time. Wow. Well, thanks, Dylan, for uh, making Mickey so happy. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and, and thank you, Yoel, because you were in charge of beer and you could have really done another, you know, bargain basement uh, search. Uh, and you didn't. So I appreciate your effort. I really, my lack of effort. I wanted to do the, uh, you know, the president's choice or whatever it is. No, the no name uh, right. beer. Yeah, but um, yeah, I just couldn't be bothered, and these were in my fridge, and so here we are. So it's the lack of them because they're just there. Yeah, exactly. It's laziness. Right. But yeah. you got some some good beers for round two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those also happen to be in my fridge already. <laughs> okay. <laughs> those are all stuff I already have. So zero effort. No effort whatsoever. All right. Yes. All yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we have a lot to get to today, don't we? Yeah, I think we do. I, this is... Uh, I'm kind of scared for uh, today's episode a little bit because... Uh, We'll be covering a couple of controversial topics. I mean, the podcast is to some extent about uh, controversy, so that should be a surprise. Um, but I think the main topic today will be uh, the topic of mindfulness. And because we are contrary in nature, we are going to be arguing against mindfulness. Well, you are. I'm, I, I'm taking the pro. You're taking the pro I'm, side. I'm for mindfulness. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so that'll be the first thing. And, you know, I say I think this was, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm slightly nervous about this because, man, the scientific literature on mindfulness is massive. And, you know, 
I love you listeners, but I'm not going to spend that much time preparing. So I spent like three hours this afternoon thinking about it, gathering uh, information, reading. Um, so this would be kind of us playing with some ideas. Yeah. And that, that for you is already like a, a lot of work. Three right? hours in a day. Dude. Three hours. <laughs> it's the summer, man. It was sunny today. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually really nice out. I, I'm impressed that you spent so much time preparing for the show. Right. So that's our main topic. Um, we wanted to have a quick discussion before we got to that about something that's been floating around, uh, I guess, uh, a little bit on Twitter, um, a little bit in uh, Sanjay Srivastava's uh, speech at SIPS, which he's the, what is he, the president or whatever it is? I'm not sure what his actual president. position is, if he's the president-elect or if he's the past president. Uh, it was Katie Corker. And now I think it's him. So I think he's like future president. Okay. So by the way, SIPS is the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science, which uh, we've talked about a lot. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, assuming background knowledge, bad idea. Um, so yeah, Sanjay gave a, a speech and address as like part of his presidential whatever, in which in part he talked about the importance of diversity and inclusion, um, where I feel like he kind of took a very pragmatic, I would say, uh, position on that, which is to say, like, look, if we're just talking to each other, we're not really going to have an impact, right? So we need to be reaching out to as many communities of researchers as possible to kind of bring them in, right? To sell them on what we're doing, um, to encourage them um, to adopt these practices that maybe are not standard in the areas in which they work. And without doing that, um, we really can't make a lot of progress, right? The um, one of the big risks is insularity, where you just become another subculture that doesn't have actually that much of an impact beyond kind of the, the bubble, um, which I think is a, a very convincing argument, right? Um, and then I, I think in the wake of that, like people were kind of talking about the importance of diversity. Um, and I guess I, I would say the way I would characterize it is that some people responded to that by saying, yeah, you know, actually, you know, diversity is one of the most important values that we have in open science. Uh, if you don't value diversity, then, you know, you really don't believe in the values of open science and so on. And I thought that was like an interesting statement that, that maybe is like worth unpacking a little bit. Uh, Mickey, what was your reaction to that? Yeah. So it's interesting because uh, so I saw some chatter uh, on Twitter and, you know, I've, I'm barely on Twitter these days, so I don't I don't I miss a lot. But I did see a little bit of chatter with that same sentiment that to some extent, um, maybe you shouldn't call yourself an open scientist if you don't value diversity. Um, and I saw some pushback against that sentiment. Uh, so I then went and immediately read Sanjay's uh, address, and I thought the address was perfectly fine. Um, it was, uh, you know, I think I, I, I pretty much agreed with all of it. I think there's perhaps one element that uh, I might disagree with a little bit, and that is, so he was, you know, he was talking about the value of diversity and how, how important it is, and it is a value. Um, and he argued, Sanjay argued, that it shouldn't necessarily be an add-on value. In other words, and I don't want to put words in Sanjay's mouth, and Sanjay, I'm sure, will correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, but to me, it seemed like maybe there was some hints at itchy part of the core mission of a society that values open science. Part of that mission should be uh, inclusivity and diversity. Um, so it's not an add-on, but it's a core part of the mission. And that's where, that's the only part, if I'm interpreting it correctly, that I had a bit more trouble with. Um, because to me, it does seem like an add-on. To me, it seems maybe orthogonal 
to the core mission of what open science should be like. But I think there's, there's room for disagreement there. So uh, maybe a mild critique of that. Um, but that, but most for the most part, I, I thought the speech uh, was really good. Yeah. So I, I guess it depends on how you interpret, you know, diversity and inclusion. Um, I would say if you're talking about just outreach, then I think arguably that is a core part of what open science people should be doing, right? Like part of what they're trying to do is to sell other people on um, these practices. And in order to do that, you need to be open to folks who are doing research that's maybe not very similar to what you do. Like you're an experimental psychologist and these people are doing like qualitative research and um, marketing or whatever. And it's like, well, how do you what what are the values that translate to that versus what are the ones that are more specific to uh, other disciplines and so on? Um, so I, to me, like, I think you can make a pretty strong argument that that is a necessity, right? Like if you want to convince people um, to change what they're doing. So I agree with that. I mean, so that, that's the argument of, you know, making sure open science is a big tent. And it's not, you know, I think to some extent it's dominated by social and personality psychologists. And let's expand uh, expand this tent so that all of psychology and even areas beyond psychology can be included. So I agree that I would say is part of the core mission. Right. And then I guess another interpretation of diversity would be we really need to worry about like the identity group membership of the people who are involved. And there, it, it kind of seems to me like the argument is a quite a bit weaker there, right? Because to me, there's not a, like a one-to-one mapping between um, identity group membership and kind of diversity of interests or the fields that people come from, which which I think is actually much more important. And in fact, like, I think you can kind of go in the wrong direction if you're focused on maximizing, you know, like, let's say the percentage of underrepresented minorities, but that comes at the cost of, you know, not speaking as broadly to as many different types of researchers to as many different fields, right? So if you like, I don't really know what this would be, but you imagine a hypothetical policy that's like going to increase the percentage of underrepresented minorities, but focus you more narrowly on specific fields, I would say, like, don't do that, right? Do the opposite. Like, So I, I do feel like that this word has so many kind of meanings packed into it that it's almost unhelpful, right? Like, and, and Sanjay, you know, gives that talk, and I assume what he means, um, not to put words in his mouth, is like, we need to appeal broadly, and we need to reach out, to totally get. And other people hear that, and they're like, man, why are they so, like, focused on upping the number of underrepresented minorities? That doesn't seem all that important, right? So it's like you hear the exact same words, and you interpret them very differently. So I don't know what the solution to that is. Maybe just being specific in your language um, could be helpful there. But I, I guess the other thing that struck me is that maybe just for purely strategic or like signaling reasons, it might be a good idea for open science folks to say like, well, we, we really value type two diversity. So like the, the demographic kind, um, because there has been this accusation thrown around, I think sort of unfairly about, you know, open science bros and these dudes who are like bullying women, et cetera, et cetera. Um, have you run into those sorts of accusations? Yeah, we have seen it. And it's kind of funny, like every once in a while, I I wonder if, you know, people think we are open science bros. Are we? I mean, we're two dudes uh, talking about open science. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm not much of a bro. <laughs> I barely drink beer. <laughs> I, I am more of a bro. You're the bro. Yeah. yeah I, of the of two of us, you're clearly the bro. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so I, I, I clearly see that uh, and, you know, kind of thrown around. And I, I think, yeah, so I like your term, type two diversity here. Um, and I, cause I have seen some sentiment that, um, you know, 
open science should have that type two diversity. It should be appealing broadly to, again, identity groups, uh, ethnicities, cultures, races, et cetera. Um, and that's the part, you know, for me at least, where, you know, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure about. Now, actually, diversity and inclusivity is a value of mine. So it is one that I care about, and I'm happy to be part of any society or, or uh, organization that values that. But I have more trouble if that um, value is seen as a core part of the mission. Um, because I, I feel then uh, we're at the whim of other kinds of values that are not necessarily core. So I, I, I see, I see the, the diversity part as orthogonal. Um, it's something I agree with, but I see it as orthogonal. And then if we say it's actually in integral to the mission, well, then what other values might we want to include as quote-unquote core parts of the mission? Uh, and maybe some of those I don't agree with, or maybe some of those many people don't agree with. Uh, and that's where I, I just worry a little bit. Yeah, right. I mean, you can't make every value that you like or approve of a core part of your mission, right? Like a kind of the definition of the core is that you have to be selective about what goes in there. And, you know, you put too much stuff into the core and at the very least, you're going to lose focus, right? Um, but I do think so. So here's one thing that I was thinking about is like this kind of very... Uh, obvious or ostentatious signaling of like, we like type two diversity, which, you know, like, I, I mean, we're not going to disagree in an interesting way on that. Like we all like it, um, is maybe a useful way to inoculate yourself against these charges of like, oh, it's open science bros and they're bullies or whatever. You can point to your policy of saying like, no, look, we're the most diverse and inclusive. We really care about diversity and inclusivity. And I do feel like, man, there is a little bit of, I don't want to say bad faith, but it is very easy when you don't have a good argument to appeal to transgressions of these kinds of values to be like, you know, these people are just like bullying bros or whatever. And it's just kind of an ad hominem insult and you don't really have to back it up. And it sort of turns people's brains off in a way, right? Like in, in the way that morality does. Um, and so that can be dangerous, right? If people start just on a political level, if people start seeing like the open science folks as being these kind of like dudes who are just going around yelling at people and I guess by implication, you know, intimidating women, et cetera, et cetera. That's really politically toxic, right? So maybe it's kind of a smart, like a very canny political move to like really emphasize this stuff just in order to protect yourself against that sort of an accusation. Is that overly cynical? That, I mean, that's an interesting take. I think it is cynical um, because, but, I, but, but, but actually, you know, if that's what's going on. I doubt it. Um, if that was going on, that would be pretty clever. No, I don't. I mean, I, everybody's too sincere for that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Sanjay, I hope you, uh, hope we didn't uh, put words in your mouth uh, and that we've, uh, you know, spoken about your position accurately, I hope. Yeah. And feel free to correct us uh, if we messed anything up. Yes, exactly. Um, all right. So shall we talk about mindfulness? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've I've had very minimal information about what uh, what you're actually going to say here. But uh, my <laughs> my understanding is that you're going to take an anti mindfulness position. Is that right? Yes. And we'll see what we end up naming the episode. But one episode I had one uh, episode name. I had in mind, kind of borrowing a, a page from Paul Bloom, 
uh, would be something like against mindfulness. Uh huh. Well, given you know our brand as a show, I think it should be fuck mindfulness. <laughs> fuck mindfulness. That's right. <laughs> that could work too. Yeah. Uh, so so maybe we should start at the beginning, and you should explain to me what mindfulness actually is. Yeah. Okay. So maybe before I get there, because I definitely want to do that. I, I just want to say like. Uh, kind of the genesis of this idea. So I was listening to Sam Harris's podcast. He had he had Adam Grant on, um, and I didn't agree with everything that Adam Grant said, especially about the topic of of replications. But I thought that like the the first part of the the podcast was excellent, and he had. Um, he too has taken a contrarian take on mindfulness. And uh, Sam Harris is kind of berating him because he's got this new app that he's trying to sell. I think he went in very bad wizards for the express purpose of trying to sell this app, I believe. Um, and Tamler and David were... Um, uh, were very nice to him, I felt. That is a cynical take. <laughs> uh, but an honest one. Um, so anyways, nonetheless, uh, I, 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 I found Adam Grant's take uh, refreshing. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to just kind of play with that idea? Uh, to take, you know, play devil's advocate and uh, see what arguments I could uh, uh, mount against mindfulness. And before, you know, kind of unpacking this stuff and saying what mindfulness even is, um, I should say this is, you know, literally a preliminary critique. This is me thinking about this again for a few hours today. I thought about it uh, in the buildup of, of today as well. Um, but if I had more time, I'd, I'd, I'd write something more thoughtful. Um, so this is really me playing with ideas. Um, and also, just give you a little background. Uh, I know you know this, uh, uh, UL, but I don't think uh, our listeners do. So I published quite a bit on the topic of mindfulness. I've got, a, I think, half a dozen papers on it. Um, I was a, a meditator for four straight years. I don't think I missed a day in that four, four years. Actually, it was during grad school, where I meditated twice a day for half an hour each time, so an hour a day. Um, and I, I drank the Kool-Aid. You know, I, I, I really, you know, read a lot about Buddhism and um and I really thought, I really believed in it. And I thought it, it, it could help me and help others. And I should say that I don't necessarily think, I don't necessarily think it can't help other people, but I, I'm just playing with ideas here and seeing what, you know, what arguments we can, we can build against it. Um, and, and one last thing, I feel I have to say this, because my neighbor in, uh, in the psych department is Zindel Siegel, who is one of the creators of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, one of the big uh, new therapies uh, and one of the um, mindfulness-based interventions, the big ones around, that are typically used in randomized controlled trials. So I have a deep respect for him. Um, hopefully he won't hate me after hearing what I have to say. Well, he does a lot of meditating, right? So I assume he doesn't hate anybody. That's right. Or at least he'll, you know, he, can, he can manage his emotions uh, after he maybe he probably ignore this. Um, but uh, all right. So let's uh, let's go forward. So first, what is mindfulness? Um, it turns out that's not an easy thing to actually define. And uh, in a recent paper, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, that is, you know, acts as a critique against the hype of mindfulness. That was the first bullet point. It's like, what is it? Well, how do we define it? Um, but there are a couple, I think, uh, popular ways of defining it. So uh, one comes uh, from the measurement of mindfulness. Uh, one of the first, one of the earliest measures was uh, created by, um, by Brown and Ryan. And they define mindfulness as a receptive state of mind in which attention, informed by a sensitive awareness of what, um, is occurring in the present, simply observe what is taking place. So as you can think of it as present moment attention, all right? And it can be measured with items such as, you know, to what extent do you agree with these statements? I could be experiencing some emotion and not be conscious of it until sometime later. 
I find it That's difficult. a reversed item, I guess. Yeah. Uh, actually, all the items are reversed items. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think it speaks to uh, what's being measured. Um, I find it difficult to stay focused on what's happening in the present. Um, I tend to walk quickly to get where I'm going without paying attention to what I experience along the way. That's totally me, by the way. Um, uh, yeah, they're all reverse scored. They're all so if any if anything, they're measuring the absence of mindfulness, mindlessness, perhaps. Um, so really, uh, that's one core aspect: is present moment awareness, kind of being aware of the moment, um, and also uh, when you when your attention lapses, being able to bring your attention again back to the moment. All right, so that's kind of one aspect, but it turns out there's a second, perhaps even more critical aspect than this uh, present moment awareness, and that is this facet of mindfulness called acceptance. Okay, so it's defined uh, in this uh, other measure, uh, the, uh, this Philadelphia mindfulness uh, scale, um, as an attitude of openness, curiosity, and acceptance. So non-judgmental acceptance of the contents of one's awareness. So it's not just being aware that's important, but it's also accepting the contents of what you're aware of, even if they're thoughts that you find distressing, even if they're thoughts you'd rather not have, even if they're thoughts of like, I can't, you know, I can't pay attention. Um, you accept even that. Um, and the point is when you're sitting on a, on a, on a cushion and, and meditating, you're typically focusing on your breath. Uh, maybe you're counting, maybe there's a mantra, or maybe you're kind of openly monitoring your own thoughts. Um, and you try to focus on this thing. And if your attention lapses, you go back to the thought over and over and over again. It can happen in a 10-minute uh, meditation session that you, you, you wander 100 times. But the point is you always go back and you don't judge yourself for having, uh, having your attention wander. Um, so that second one, again, I think the acceptance facet is critically important. Uh, here are some items. Again, all reverse scored, which I think is problematic. Um, I try to distract myself when I feel unpleasant emotions. If there is something I don't want to think about, I'll try many things to get it out of my mind. I tell myself that I shouldn't have certain thoughts. So you can actually think of this scale, um, it probably most directly measures suppression. Right, thought suppression, emotion suppression, not and 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 the opposite of suppression is not necessarily acceptance, um, but it could be. Um, so those are the two facets. But those are typically what you know um, uh, people refer to when they think of mindfulness, uh, and it's also thought that the act of meditation, typically for uh, you know. Uh, engaging in a regular practice, maybe attending a, you know, a week, a month, a very long uh, meditation retreat, uh, by sitting and meditating, you can cultivate these, this skill, this, this ability to attend and to accept uh, what you're attending to. So does that jibe with what, you know, what do you think of mindfulness? Yeah, I, I guess my first issue would be like measuring this stuff via self-report, which just seems kind of questionable. And then the yeah, I understand that these, you know, these questions or these facets are sort of in the ballpark of what you're trying to achieve by meditation, but they also really seem to miss the thing that is so impactful maybe about doing meditation, right? Of recognizing, first of all, how much your mind wanders, and then maybe recognizing that all of these thoughts that are coming to your consciousness, um, you don't need to identify identify with them. Um, you can kind of view them almost as part of the outside world, right? Um, and if you 
I, I mean, I have never come close to this, but from what I've read, really advanced meditators kind of have a ongoing experience of not self of de-identifying with a lot of this stuff where they can just like watch it in the same way that you might watch the breeze blow leaves on trees or something. Right. So it's kind of a recognition of like how little we control about the contents of our um, conscious awareness. I guess to me, like I understand that these scales are sort of having something related to that, but the, the really like deep and interesting stuff about meditation, I feel like they're not, it's just sort of missing the point. It's like sort of sucking out all the interesting parts, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the measurement is is really, really, really difficult. And it's almost as if you, um, you need the skill to realize how mindless you actually are. And it's possible that the more actually mindful you are, the lower on the scale you will, you will, uh, you will measure. Um, and in fact, there's actually this one funny, hilarious study where they got um, experienced meditators. Uh, I, I forget now how 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 much experience, but let's you know probably on average like about a year of experience. And they compared them to binge drinkers, measuring them in mindfulness. And the binge drinkers were higher in mindfulness. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, there's an element of like you don't know what you don't know, right? So until you start paying attention you don't realize how much your attention is constantly being hijacked by these like thoughts, memories, expectations about the future. Right. And then once you start paying a little attention, you're like, wow, all of this stuff is going on in my head. And I kind of had no idea. That was my experience anyway. Um, and so giving the scale to somebody who's like literally never meditated, they might be like doing great, you know, really can focus on the moment. This is awesome. Yes, I, I, I never walk quickly and 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 therefore I can, you know, maximize myself on that scale. There. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I get I guess, you know, issue one is just measurement, right? Like the research is only as good as the measures that you're using. Um, and I, I mean, I would be, I guess, much more impressed by something more behavioral rather than self-report. That's right. So there's, and there, there is now a, I mean, so a lot of people lament the fact that uh, it's just a difficult contract to measure and it might not be even amenable to self-report because it, yeah, because of this, this kind of irony built into it. Um, so uh, researchers have turned to, let's say, quote unquote, objective measures, physiological measures, more behavioral measures. Um, but there, the results are really messy. Um, and I don't think we get a really consistent picture there either. Um, so, and, and I would like to get to that, but because uh, I've got uh, uh, a bunch, a bunch to say about the objective measure, because that's actually where I also come in. So, as I mentioned, uh, I have studied this, and I was super gung ho about this research. And we used um, measures of executive functions, so getting at attentional control, and also we measured um, neural correlates of attentional control. Uh, again, for this very reason that we, we don't want, we don't trust some of these scales. And, and, and there, we did find some significant results, but as you'll see, you know, I'm, I'm less trustworthy of them um, nowadays. Um, but okay, so let me kind of say, answer the question, first question, why I'm skeptical, okay? Um, and we've already covered some of it. So uh, the measurement, I think, is a big issue. Well, first of all, I think I'm just like contrarian by nature. Something has you know, so many people rushing to say how great it is. Um, Ariane Huffington has gone into the picture. She's kind of been pushing a mindfulness. I think there's mindfulness, you know, pushers at Davos in Switzerland at this big economic uh, uh, summit that happens every year. Um, you know, corporations are getting into it. I mean, I think mindfulness cures everything. Um, it makes you happier. 
Uh, it uh, makes you more productive. It, 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 it prom it's promised to improve your sleep, uh, boost your self-esteem, um, help with your relationships, uh, make you more empathic, more compassionate. Um, I mean, anything good, suppose someone I guarantee has promised that mindfulness can do that. So right away, there's massive overclaiming. So, you know, uh, and now a lot of responsible researchers aren't doing this. Um, I think it's, it's, it's more kind of... A, a, people who are not scholars who are, you know, kind of saying this stuff. But nonetheless, it's been incredibly hyped. So um, I just have a knee-jerk reaction to it. And if you actually look at the literature, it's unbelievable, you know, how much the literature has grown in the past, uh, really, like 15 years. Um, so there's always been a little bit of research, some in the 70s with John Kabat-Zinn, who developed mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is, you know, probably the most popular mindfulness-based intervention out there used in RCTs. Um, and that was created in the 70s. And you saw a, a little bit of studies in the 70s. It was quite a pretty quiet, uh, really, until the late 90s, early 2000s, and then, like, skyrocketed, uh, such that um, there are now, uh, you know, thousands of articles uh, on the topic um, and, and it's, it, it's just hard to, to, to grasp, you know, uh, how big it is to fathom how big it is and, and just kind of, kind of keep abreast of it all. Um, so that's one thing, just kind of me, my kind of knee jerk reaction to it. Um, but then, you know, I'm, I'm clearly not the only one. Um, there are scholars who study meditation themselves, who just last year wrote a paper, uh, called, the title is mind the hype, a critical evaluation and prescriptive agenda for research on mindfulness and meditation. The authors, I'll name a few because there's a big long list of them. Um, Nicholas Van Dam, uh, Mariki uh, Van Vucht, Vucht uh, David Vago, and David Meyer. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure I've butchered some of these names. Um, but many of these are, 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 are mindfulness scholars themselves. And uh, they, I think, laid forth a really interesting set of critiques and kind of uh, prescriptions for the future. So clearly there's, you know, a, a lot of people who are, who are thinking, let's, 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 you know, let's pump the brakes a little bit and let's stress test this thing uh, just a little bit. Um, so do you get this, you get the idea as well that the, the hype machine is there? Oh yeah, absolutely. This seems like the latest trend among the globalists, you know? Uh, it, yeah, it, it, I, and I, I get also the wanting to be skeptical of something like that. Like when someone, when everybody's telling you this is such a great idea, then I think it makes sense to, to try and take a step back and to separate the hype from the from the facts. Right. And especially because there are opportunity costs to doing this, right? So, you know, if it turns out like all that mindfulness really does or meditation really does is relieve stress, I'm not saying that that's what it does, but let's say it did. Well, then there are lots of ways to relieve stress that are more fun. Um, read a book, watch a movie, exercise, have sex. Um, I'm just imagining if you spent uh, half an hour twice a day having sex for four years as a grad student, what that would do for your quality <laughs> of life. Um, I don't think it would be bad. I think it'd be good. No, I'm saying it would be positive. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, funnily enough, there's a paper, there's actually a paper with the title, Argentine Tango Dance Compared to Mindfulness Meditation and a Weightless Control, a Randomized Trial for Treating Depression. So someone actually tested the effic efficacy of the dancing the tango, learning how to dance the tango, and mindfulness. And the results suggest they're equally beneficial or equally lack benefit. Um, it's only one study, mind you. But I mean, you know, again, it kind of gets to the point of you could do something else potentially uh, just as effective. So there are opportunity costs for doing this thing. Um, 
So let me kind of go over a couple of things and then I'll kind of give you my own take. Uh, so first, we already covered, you know, the, 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 the construct itself is poorly defined. Um, there are lots of definitions. I kind of, I kind of narrowed in on two core aspects of it, but there are many more. Um, and, uh, sometimes we're lumping in things together that aren't mindfulness at all. So some studies are supposedly about mindfulness, yet the induction of mindfulness is yoga, right? And yoga has some mindfulness elements, but, uh, it's not pure mindfulness by any stretch of the imagination. Um, martial arts also has aspects of mindfulness, um, but I, mean, I wouldn't call that a mindfulness practice. So that's one. Um, two, we've already covered as well, uh, measurement issues. I mean, they're just, uh, it is true that a lot of the mindfulness measures, uh, I think they tend to cohere. So they're not, uh, they're not measuring separate things. And they do predict, you know, things we'd like, but they're not showing discriminant validity uh, relative to other things. Um, is, it, is it possible we're measuring just uh, the opposite of neuroticism by these measures that, you know, because it's strongly and negatively correlated with neuroticism. Um, and uh, so that's that's possible. So that's, I think, a, a big, big critique. So, you know, the, the measures suffer from a construct of poor construct validity. Um, and then uh, thirdly, they talk about the studies themselves. The study themselves, you know, the, the best studies out there are typically randomized controlled trials, so RCTs, that will compare mindfulness-based interventions against something else. Hopefully, the good studies will compare them against active controls, not passive controls. There aren't that many studies like that actually use active controls. Um, uh, but even then, like you have various kinds of practices lumped in together, not pure mindfulness-based practices. Um, but, uh, but if you actually look at the ones that are using the best possible measures, so, you know, that have randomized control trials with active control groups, the results, there's a recent meta-analysis in JAMA, um, where the results are really, really quite uninspiring. Um, so let me read, uh, let me read directly here. So in a recent review and meta-analysis commissioned by the U.S. Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, mindfulness-based interventions compared to active controls, so these are again the best studies, were found to have a mixture of only moderate, low, or no efficacy, depending on the disorder being treated. Specifically, the efficacy of mindfulness was only moderate in reducing symptoms of anxiety, depression, and pain. Also, efficacy was low in reducing stress and improving quality of life. There was no effect or insufficient evidence for attention, positive mood, substance use, eating habits, sleep, and weight control. It's interesting that the stuff that you get some effect on seems to be the stuff that's more subjective self-report. Did that strike you? Uh, so the anxiety and depression and pain. Yeah, that's interesting. Yep. Um, uh, there's one other line here that uh, I want to mention because it's that even undercuts that even that positive effect. Okay, we found no evidence that meditation programs were better than any active treatments, even on the positive stuff, even the reducing symptoms of anxiety, depression, and pain, the, the, where there's the most promise for for mindfulness-based interventions. Um, it's no better than other active treatments. And in here, they put you know in brackets drugs, so uh, exercise. Um, or other behavioral therapies. So CBT, just plain old CBT, is just as good as some of these mindfulness-based mindfulness interventions. Exercise, you know, go jog, right? Yoga actually might be better, um, or just as good, I should say, um, in alleviating some of these symptoms. Um, and some of them might be more enjoyable than sitting on, on your cushion, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes, you know, multiple times a day. 
Um, so that I thought was very, very striking. Okay, so this is the last the last thing they mentioned in this paper, which is, I, I recommend it, and we'll put it in the show notes because I think you should read it if you're interested in this topic. Um, so the last critique is there are possibly adverse effects um, from meditating. So one is that sometimes in the process of meditation, people have realizations about themselves that they can't handle um, and that are, you know, it's it's contraindicated for some people. Um, I think that's probably a, a rare kind of effect. Um, I think the, the, the bigger problem is, um, you know, the unjustified claims of benefit that are made to an unsuspecting public. Um, and... You know, the possibility that, you know, again, a vulnerable patients might do mindfulness-based treatment as opposed to something else that might be better in general or better for them. And I think, you know, uh, we, I think we have to think seriously about that negative effect before we start proselytizing. Oh, at worst, it's harmless. Right. Right. So it, it, um, it, it gets to this opportunity cost thing again, which is like non-trivial, right? If you're going to like really do serious meditation, like you're talking about like uh, quite a time commitment every day. Um, that you you could be spending that time doing lots of other things. Tango dancing. Exactly. <laughs> Having a lot of sex. <laughs> Just keep coming back to the sex. I mean, that should be like your gold standard for, is it better than sex? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I think very little would be Yeah, that's right. The, the answer would always <laughs> just be have sex. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So the easiest way is probably on Twitter where we are at Four Beers Pod. You can DM us. Uh, you can at mention us. Our DMs are open and we both check that account. If you're more an email sort of person, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That again will go to both of us. Uh, finally, our website is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can also listen to our previous episodes. Uh, finally, um, I always ask people to rate and review us on iTunes and the thought that that maybe does something. So uh, we still have not figured out whether it does, but uh, why not? We like reviews. So if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. Yes, please do that. Excellent. Uh, so, Mickey, um, I guess we're going to do real quick beer chat. This is a throwback to our very early episode where we drank this beer, Lunch Money, by Collective Arts, a brewery from around here, around the GTA. Um, from Hamilton. Actually. From Hamilton. Yeah. Is that not considered the GTA? 
Uh, I suppose it might be. Hamilton, Ontario is its own city, but it's, yeah. it's within the Golden Horseshoe. All of Hamilton is now fucking pissed at me. <laughs> right. I'm not a Canadian. I don't know. It's like it's, you know, if I can ride there on my bike, I consider it to be the GTA. Yeah, that's a long bike ride. Though. I've ridden out to Hamilton once, and then I was like, "Fuck this." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's like a, a Blondale. It's uh, I they think call it an American blonde. Yeah, I don't know what makes it American. I'm not sure. I know typically. Uh, in Canada, at least, we'll call like the West Coast IPAs American pale ales sometimes. So Interesting. Maybe something related to that. Anyway, it's nice. It's sort of like, yeah, very, very chill, easy to drink summer beer. Unlike what the name connotes, right? Because the, the name connotes like a bully right. stealing Give your lunch, your lunch money. money. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is just like much more relaxed than that. It's not, it's, it's, it's real nice. Um, it again is something that I had in my fridge. So <laughs> it's got that going for it too. Thank you, fridge. Yeah. Thank you, fridge. Um, do we have any other business before we get back to mindfulness? Uh, no, I think we're good. Amazing. So, you know, we were talking during the break. Um, we've been talking a lot about the research, which I think is super informative, but I'm curious about your personal experience, right? So you said you were like a four-year serious meditator twice a day, an hour total. So that's like, that's real. Um, so you were doing, what What? What sort of uh, meditation were you doing exactly? So it was... Uh... In the Vipassana Buddhism tradition, uh, I mean the meditation, the actual meditation I practiced was mostly you know breath related, um, but it also involved uh, you know open monitoring of thoughts mm-hmm. as well. But typically, it's breath related um, or concentrative meditations. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of paying attention to your breath and then paying attention to thoughts that came up. That's right, and always you know uh, getting back to your breath and like literally, I mean. You're doing this hundreds and hundreds of times, uh, and you know you have some moments where you can you can hold it. You can you can you can you can you can be in the moment for a good few seconds, you know, uh, or or longer. But even after my four years, I, I it was still it was still rather hard for me. I, I can't say it was an easy thing for me to do. And do you feel like it changed you as a person at all? Like, were you different when you? You know, outside of that time that you were spending meditating, did it change how you interacted with the world? I mean, it's hard to say um, because I was also steeped in a culture, if you will. So I was reading a lot about about Buddhism and uh, especially I, I really enjoyed uh, this one kind of meditation, loving kindness meditation, also called metta. Um which is, uh, you know, a series of, of re- repeating a series of uh, sayings about, you know, spreading love and, and peace to yourself, others, strangers, loved ones, even people you dislike. Um, so I was thinking a lot about that. Um, and I think because it was on my mind, it might have impacted me and, and, and perhaps maybe more kind. I'm not sure. Um, if I look back at that time, did I cultivate more awareness of my thoughts, perhaps. Um, but I think I, I don't think I was ever very good at it. Uh, and I don't think I was ever very good at the, I think, the more critical element, which is this acceptance element, this um, non-judgmental stance. Um, and, you know, you practice this all the time when you're actually sitting because, you know, after you've been doing this for years, you're like, you start getting angry with yourself for not being good at it. Um, you start judging yourself for for, for, for losing concentration. So or losing focus. So um, there was the, an ability, at least, to practice the the, the acceptance aspect. Um, but I found that quite difficult. I think um, I only I only had uh, attended one uh, long retreat, and 
I must admit that after that retreat, I felt different, um, but for a day. Um, so I felt I was a bit more aware of my surroundings. I felt I noticed things a bit more. Um, but it's also, you know, it was a silent retreat. So it's also possible that I was, you know, um, deprived of stimulation. Uh, and then, you know, for, for, for a few days and then afterwards, you kind of, things became more vibrant and this, everything, was, the gain and everything was upped. Um, so it's hard to know, but I, I like that feeling that, you know, that uh, of the next day, but it didn't last very long. Yeah. So um, in Robert Wright's book, uh, Why Buddhism, ugh, Why Buddhism is True, this is like, uh, after a beer, it's hard to say things. <laughs> Jeez, no tolerance. Um, so he he's done more retreats than you have, I guess, and he talks about some of these like really. I would I would think of them as like breakthrough experiences, where like he really, while he was on the retreat, felt like he saw reality in a very different way. Did you ever have an experience like that? Um, I had experiences of like some epiphanies, some realizations about myself. Uh, about like why I acted the way I acted um, and what motivates me. Um, things that I still see in myself today. Um, also aspects of my personality became more clear. Um, but it's, you know, because I don't have the control group uh, of what I would have been like without the meditation, it's not clear to me that I wouldn't have realized this anyways. I mean, was it just, was it just a process of maturation? Uh, I mean, I, I, I hope I've made other... Uh, realizations about myself as I've aged. And like I said, I haven't met, I haven't had a regular meditation practice now in, uh, oh boy, 15 plus years. Um, so, and I think I've had realizations about myself, uh, since then. So yeah, it's hard to tell. Right. So when it's this like really dramatic kind of perceptual experience, it seems harder to attribute that to anything other than the meditation itself. Right. Because it's just not not something that normally occurs is like, let's say you get older and, and hopefully wiser. Whereas you're right. You know, you can achieve self insight in lots of ways that don't involve meditation. Right. Like, right. So, I mean, I, I get you're saying and I, I've heard that line of argument a few times. This idea of like, oh, you get these kind of like these magical moments, these like moments of like. I think that the big one is like, you know, you know, there is no self. Um, you, you, you realize that like your thoughts are not, they aren't you. And you realize, you know, maybe the self is this kind of illusion to some extent. Um, I get that. Um, and I've experienced that when I'm high on various drugs. So I get those experiences. Wonderful. I'm not sure they've changed me as right. a human being. Right. So it's kind of, I find that motivation, I, I you know, I, I, I've heard a few people say this and I'm like, okay, go take MDMA. Go, go on magic mushrooms for a little bit, which by the way, we now know might have some really good therapeutic benefits. Go take a couple of doses of, uh, of magic mushrooms and save yourself the meditation. Yeah, you know, interestingly, Sam Harris, who, as you noted, is a big meditation proponent, he's also a proponent of these um hallucinogens, right? Uh, because he says like, well, this will give you an idea of what's out there, um, what you can expect if you really conscientiously meditate, like this is what might be accessible to you without them doing the drugs. And you might be like, well, shit, man, mushrooms aren't that expensive. <laughs> For like the, the, the few moments you get them, uh, those real life, I mean, unless, unless you know, someone like, like Sam is ha having these all the time. Well, that's the thing is like, can you really trust somebody who self-reports about that stuff? I don't right. know. I don't right. know. Then right. where you like, 
I guess ultimately we have to, right? If you're like, well, I see reality in a fundamentally different way, man, and it's ineffable. I just like, you can't explain it until you feel it. It's like, great. What do I, what do I do with that? Maybe you're full of shit, right? But I think there's lots of experiences that, that make you see the world a different. I think traveling, traveling for an extended period of time, you realize, oh, the way we do things is just one way of doing things. Um, it gets you out of your, out of your head, out of your culture, and it, it, it wakes you up. To realize that, like a lot of the stuff we do, is constructed. It's not. It's not. Doesn't. It's not the way it has to be. Um, maybe mindfulness is one. Meditation is one route to getting there. Travel is another route. I think reading literature is another route. Um, again, drugs is another route. I mean, that's a very quick and immediate route to get there. Um, so, I'm not. You know, I guess I'm not buying that that line of argumentation because you can get get it in other sources, and that's. I don't think that's. I think that's an unusual experience. Right. So. You had been doing this for four years. What ultimately led you to quit? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it is it is a it is a major effort, um, and you know, an hour a day is a, is a major commitment. I, I, ultimately, I moved. I moved to, to, to start a postdoc, and maybe just being in a different place, a uh, different phase of my life. I just kind of just stopped doing it. Um, I didn't stop doing it altogether. I still maintain a practice for 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 even a year or so afterwards. Um, but it wasn't the regular, like religious practice that I had before. Um, I, I think ultimately it was too much effort for the amount of benefit that I thought I was getting. I didn't think I was getting much benefit in the end. Yeah. And you didn't notice like a dramatic change in your state of mind after you stopped regularly meditating? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Again, I might have been a better person, a nicer person. I don't know. You have to ask. You have to ask other people. Um, perhaps I was, and maybe now I'm. You know, I'm this grump, you know, grumpy, dis, you know, disagreeable man, and I was a slightly less so when I was meditating. Um, it's possible. Right. Uh, well, we don't have the results from the survey yet, but uh, hopefully by the time the next episode is recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> But I mean, also, we, you know, we don't need to trust completely, uh, you know, my report. Um, there people, people do conduct research on this, right? And, and that's, I think, maybe we'll dive into a little, a little bit next. Yeah, so, so tell me a little more about that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, so kind of outline my first source of skepticism is, just, you know, kind of general, like kind of this reaction. And there's, there's a lot of people having a similar reaction. Um, and uh, the second source of skepticism um, is... Um, is more uh, theoretical in nature. Um, and I want to focus on one specific, I think it's like the kind of the master effect that mindfulness is supposed to, uh, uh, supposed to have, okay? And that's the effect on attentional control, the ability to, to be aware, to stay focused. And it's when you can stay focused that you can then notice thoughts that you don't want to be having. Uh, you can be noticed when you're not paying attention. Uh, you have this kind of metacognitive awareness. Um, you, and when you have that, again, you can have thoughts, sensations, feelings that you're having, and you have a decision about what to do with them. You don't have to be a slave to them. You can realize they can just pass you by if you would like to. So to some extent, this kind of this ability, um, of, you know, developing this, this refined sense of attention, I think in psychology, we'd call that attentional control, cognitive control, or executive function. To me, that is the the route by which all the po other positive effects run through, I believe. Um, so, uh, so then the question is, what is the evidence that, uh, that in fact 
mindfulness increases executive function, cognitive control, working memory, all this kind of family uh, uh, outcomes that are related to kind of awareness um, and also acceptance. Um, so um, the first sort of doubt is completely theoretical, okay? And that is and that has to do with my kind of understanding of... Uh, Lots of work, millions of dollars of money poured into so-called brain training or cognitive training, and this is I this is this idea that we had for about a decade now, or maybe a little bit more than that, that practicing various attentional uh, control tasks or working memory tasks um, will not only improve your performance on those tasks themselves, but they will have they'll have far transfer and lead to effects in the real world, such that you can pay attention better in the real world or have better memory in the real world. You won't be as forgetful. Um, and companies like Lumosity uh, have touted this uh, as brain training as having these kinds of effects. But uh, now we now know that essentially these effects don't work. Or what, we, what, what does work is, you know, you, when you do these brain training games, you get good at the games you train on. And maybe you get slightly better on, uh, on, on, on games that are, you know, somewhat related to the games you trained on. But you do not show what's called far transfer. You don't actually get better in the real world on attention or memory. Um, and that's, there's a consensus on this now. All right. So is meditation possibly the same thing? Is it possibly a uh, a form of brain training or cognitive training? You're doing it on a cushion, not you know on a computer. Um, you're training your 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 attentional ability, but it doesn't move beyond the ability to focus on your breath, or it doesn't you know doesn't stay with you when you're not meditating. Um, so my question is: Does it transfer? Does it transfer to tasks that it should uh, it should be training? So in fact, if you actually measure objective measures of attention, working memory, flexi attentional flexibility, do you show improvements? Okay. Um, and again, so, but theoretically, at least from the brain training stuff, we, we, we now there's some consensus that it doesn't transfer. And even more so, now people are thinking, you know, maybe attention might be more kind of modular than we ever thought. It isn't this general kind of resource that could be used and applied in different kinds of uh, attentional tasks. You know, if you practice the piano, you get good at the piano. You don't get good at the violin. You certainly don't get good at your math homework. That's the analogy. You get good at piano alone. So my question is, is practicing, you know, is meditating mean you become good at meditation, but not necessarily good at regulating your emotions or regulating your thoughts um, in the real world? So on a theoretical level, it seems like there's some analogy here. And like, it seems like it would be uh, hard to show this, given what we know about, but, but about brain training. Yeah. So I guess this um, raises a question that I've, I've had as we've been talking about this, but like, is this maybe just a question of dosage? So like I, I get that, you know, these kind of short term experiences where you play around with an app, you know, they don't they don't have far transfer. But like, you know, there are cases in which there's obviously far transfer. Right. So if you think about graduate school and you get training in research methods like that allows you to think critically about research in a way that's, you know, at least somewhat transferable to novel problems right now. That's not sitting there with an app for 10 minutes a day. That's like five years of your life or more to like get somewhat competent at it. In the same way, I think you can develop your mathematical intuition such that it generalizes to new problems, at least in that domain broadly of like thinking about mathematical problems, right? So I, I don't think it's controversial that sometimes you do get 
I, I don't know like what exactly you call far transfer, but like farther transfer, right? So to me, that raises the question of like, well, maybe if you do an RCT where you're having people like meditate for like 30 minutes a day or whatever, it's just not enough, right? What you have to be doing is looking at the people who've really seriously committed to this, who've gone on, you know, uh, a retreat every six months, who have a daily practice and who've been doing that for a decade or two. Um, and just my subjective experience of some of these people who are like more heavily into this, like you mentioned, our colleague Zindel, that dude is very chill, you know? Now, I didn't know a premeditation. <laughs> Maybe he came out of his mom that way, but like, I, I kind of doubt it. I, 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 so I do feel like, yeah, you know, maybe, and, and this gets to like, how broadly should you be recommending that people do this? But like on a theoretical level, um, is it possible that people who do this in a really extreme way, um, and maybe in combination with that, they, the people who select self-select to do that are the people who are naturally kind of more gifted at it, that for those people, it really does have kind of a dramatic, broad ranging effect on how they think. Yeah, that's a good point. So you, you said a couple of things that I want to want to address. So the first is this idea of far transfer and you, you gave the analogy of grad school. And I, I agree that that's a good, uh, uh, pushback against what I said. And I think you're right. So maybe just because there's no far, tra far transfer in brain training doesn't mean there's not far transfer in, you know, meditation to the real world. So there are other examples of far transfer. And one could also argue that some aspects of meditation are, again, open monitoring of your own thoughts. And that's not that different than monitoring your thoughts when you're walking around. In fact, some meditations are walking meditations. Um, so maybe it can transfer more readily because the thing you're doing, you're also going to be doing, but you're just you're doing it as you're maybe talking to someone else or interacting with uh, with some sort of stimulus. So I I I, I give you that. I think that's a, that's a good uh, pushback to what I said. Um, and the second thing you said was, you know, maybe there's a dose res dose response a relationship here that we need to be paying attention to, and maybe it there's some kind of threshold of effect. So, not, you know. Anything less than, I'm throwing out a number here, five years of regular meditation practice. I say five because I did four. Um, you know, anything less than five years of regular meditation practice um, is not going to really do much for you. Um, so, and then, but, but once you cross that threshold, then the magic occurs. Or maybe you, maybe it's, you have to do these long retreats. And I only did one long retreat. Maybe you have to do um, like six months worth of, of long retreats, like, you know, over however many years um, uh, to get it to work. And I buy that. But now this becomes really, really hard to study. Okay. Because um, now the only way you can study this kind of design is cross-sectional. Right. So now you've got to compare people who are um, experienced meditators, let's say minimum five years, let's say, or minimum six months of, of retreat time. And then you've got to compare them to, to, to some other group. OK. And that design is problematic. OK. It's problematic for, uh, I think, a few reasons. Um, but I think the, the, the main one is that now people are... Well, first of all, it's a self-selection self issue. So the people, maybe they were cool, collected, uh, and, you know, zen already, okay? But even if they weren't, um, they know they've been practicing meditation for five years. They know they've devoted six months of their life to silent retreat, which has got to be God, you know, terribly boring, right? So cognitive distance alone is going to push them to think this is a valuable thing, a worthwhile thing. They're highly, highly motivated to show the meditation works. 
Okay. And this is a serious problem. And there's this, it's a really, really cool study. I believe it's from 2012. Um, the title of the studies, this, this appeared in the Journal of Experimental Psychology General with the title Mindfulness Training Affects Attention or Is It Attentional Effort? Uh, the authors are Christian Gadden Jensen et al. I'm going to not bother uh, butchering the names. This is out of the University of Copenhagen. And they did something really, really clever. They got people uh, to do, uh, I think it was an eight week um, mindfulness intervention. And then they had a, a weightless control. I don't think it was an active control. Um, but uh, for half of those participants who were in the control, they motivated them. Uh, they, they incentivized uh, uh, their kind of time to task. And the time to task was, you know, a, a measures of attention. Again, I'm really interested in attention because I think that's the, the, the root, uh, the, uh, the effect why, by which everything else works. Um, and uh, what they found was that the people who were in the mindfulness training were just it didn't do any better than the the uh, the non-mindfulness group who were motivated with money. There were a couple exceptions here and there. There were some small effects here and there. But essentially what this is saying is that um, it's possible that some of the effects that we see are because of motivation. So again, someone who's a devotee, who's like committed many years of his life, like Sam Harris, he's super motivated to show this effect. If you put him in a scanner, he knows his mindfulness is being tested. He's going to try extra, extra hard. Kind of like, um, you know, uh, if I put you in the scanner and the motivation would be you can save a couple of bucks. Um, you would be certainly motivated to do well on that cognitive that control is a, test. That's a hurtful stereotype, Nikki. <laughs> and I'm surprised to hear it from you, of all people. <laughs> Who says I'm stereotyping, dude? <laughs> that's a, you know, stereotypes can be accurate. I'm seeing it in action whenever you buy beers, dude. Um, but it was, I, I think that that paper kind of really opened my eyes to the, to the fact that cross-sectional designs are just like, they're not, they, they can't work here um, because you've got this a, a motivational uh, confound. Um, so really, the only the only solution are you know are are double blind RCTs, but a double blind RCT is impossible as well. You can have a blinded RCT, one one blind, but the mindfulness group is going to know they're in the mindfulness group, okay? And because of all the hype we've heard about mindfulness, they might start thinking things about how good mindfulness is, um, and again be motivated to to, to show these effects. There could be demand even with an RCT. I think there's some clever ones. You can find some, I've seen some studies where the active control was, um, actually it's one really clever one, where the active control was people thought they were in a mindfulness intervention as well. Okay, this is one using the Headspace app. It's a competitor of Sam Harris's uh, pod, uh, app. Um, and uh, which a lot of, I think, researchers have used uh, to test uh, for downstream consequences. Um, and uh, so it's using the app for, I think, eight weeks or uh, just closing your eyes and listening to the same dude narrate, but not say anything mindfulness or how to, mind, how to meditate, but just saying you're going to be engaging in mindfulness now, but not saying how to do it. So it's literally a close your eyes kind of active control. Um, so that's a good one. And by the way, this one study that I've seen... Um, that examined this, um, they found that indeed the Headspace app could increase critical thinking and open-mindedness, but so did the sham fake mindfulness control group and no other effects of, uh, of Headspace. Um, and that was a paper by uh, Noon and Hogan uh, that appeared in uh, BMC Psychology in 2018. Um, so, I mean, it's just very, very hard to study. Um, but there are RCTs, I've already mentioned the meta-analysis that shows at least clinically uh, there are uh, problems, um, but there's another uh, there's another uh, uh, meta analysis that I found 
um, that looked at uh, various effects, and again, focusing now on what I consider the master effect, which is attention or cognitive control, um, and essentially found uh, there, and this is without even bias corrections in this meta-analysis, they found that there are no effects for attentional control, flexibility, and there might, but there might be some effects for working memory, possibly. Um, but again, no corrections for bias uh, or small samples or anything like that. Um, so to me, at least, the research is, you know, uh, and I can actually, I've got spe specific studies that I can mention that kind of, I actually have one study, one study that I found that was pre-registered um, that examined uh, an RCT uh, of, uh, it is um, eight hours of mindfulness training uh, in a classroom that happened over a two-week span, a four-week span, but then they had to do homework for eight weeks total, both groups, and then they were they were measured on various uh, attentional and memory outcomes, and the results were mixed. You know, so some, I mean, not if you listen to the authors, the authors would, would tell all the positive results, but if you actually look carefully, um, you know, one out of the one out of the three attentional effects were significant. Um, uh, I think one, I think the one working memory effect was significant. Um, but then if you uh, look at the pre-registration and what they actually did, it's, it's, it's pretty different. Um, so I would say at best the, the evidence is equivocal in the one pre-registered study that I found. So this all sounds pretty negative. Do you, do you have anything to say in favor of mindfulness? Like, is there value in this at all, in your opinion? Uh, I mean, there is. So, I mean, as I said at, at the get-go, I'm playing devil's advocate here, and I hope no one is listening to what I'm saying to it seriously, number one. Um, but I think I think more than that, it, it, it's uh, my purpose here was to kind of build up, play devil's advocate and build up the case against it. Um, I think it's at this point, uh, I don't want to say it's early, because we've been studying this now for a good 15, 20 years now. So it's, it's, it's we've been doing it for too long to say it's early. Um, uh, but, it, but apparently there was, I, I, I saw one headline that the quality of research on mindfulness has not improved in the past 16 years, despite the same things that have been mentioned recently, been mentioned 16 years ago about the quality, how to define mindfulness, um, you know, the need for active controls, the need for RCTs, the, the need to demonstrate, like, for example, dose response relationships, like you mentioned. Um, and these are few and far between. Um, so... I, I certainly wouldn't say give up on it. I, I certainly wouldn't say it's, you know, you know, it's, it, it's all bullshit, as some, you know, critics will say. But I'll say, like, you know, treat it with caution. Um, it doesn't seem to be better than other treatments. Um, like, for example, CBT. Um, it's not clear to me that it actually does impact cognitive control. And by the way, I didn't mention this. Like, I, that's what I've studied. So I have a number of empirical uh, papers on this. And this is pre-replication crisis. And, you know, I've got one study, it's my own paper that I'm criticizing now, where we tried to examine, um, this is cross-sectional, we got a community sample of meditators, and again, we know there's a problem there because these people are motivated. Um, I compared them to uh, age and gender match controls. And we predicted one thing, we had a really small sample, 44 people total for, with two groups. Um, we got, you know, one p-value p in the danger area, p of 0.04. Um, a second one was non-significant, was marginally significant, right? But still got a publication out of it. And it's actually pretty highly cited, um, at least for me. But I no longer, I no longer think it's, I no longer think it's trustworthy. I mean, by that I mean, I, 
I don't think it will replicate, is what I mean by that. Um, it could, but I'm not sure. Um, so I'm throwing myself under the bus here too. I don't want to throw other people under the bus. I think like I'm just as guilty of, of maybe overselling this stuff as anybody else. Um, but I also don't want to say it's complete rubbish uh, because I just don't think we've studied it well enough. Um, I think it can be studied a lot better. And maybe we start. We, we have to start thinking about studying maybe other things. Um, so maybe we got to get away from like ha mental health and happiness and sub subjective well-being and start maybe thinking about like that other kind of more metaphysical um, kind of effect, kind of like uh, the way you relate to yourself and what the self is. And do you start defining this up a little bit differently? Um, and I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing, um, but it seems to be a phenomenon that a number of people have reported experiencing. Um, now, is that because they've actually experienced it or is that because, again, people said they were going to experience it and then again, all this work to do it they, and then, then experience it? I'm not really sure. Um, but I think that might be a promising avenue, something we should at least explore. Yeah, this is interesting. Like, I didn't have this thought um, coming into this discussion. And, you know, I'm normally just such an advocate for empiricism and doing the RCT and how do you know anything if you don't have like a solid um, empirical foundation where ideally you've assigned people randomly to do a thing or not do a thing. And it, it might be that this is just like not that sort of thing, that it's just too hard. Um, it takes too much work and you can't reasonably do an RCT on it and see anything interesting. So by cramming this into the RCT framework, we are just losing what's interesting about it. And maybe what we should be saying to people is like, look, try this. You may have a really interesting subjective experience. So I have. Um, you know, I've sort of fallen off recently, but there was a period where it was like pretty regularly um, doing like a 20 to 25 minute per day, like same as you, you know, watching the breath kind of mindfulness meditation. And I, I don't know that it had like super dramatic effects on like how I live my life day to day. I, I noticed some minor differences, but mainly it's just subjectively interesting to see like how your mind works. That's kind of cool. Right. And so maybe we should be saying to people like, look, this is something with a long tradition that at least some people feel like they've gotten a lot out of. Try it. See what you think of it. Like, maybe it's going to work for you, um, in which case, great. Keep doing it. Maybe you feel like it doesn't do anything, in which case, probably better spend your time doing something else. Maybe yeah. something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Always uh, the thing to which you should be comparing your present activities. Um, and, you know, like that's less kind of like hard nosed empirical and it's more subjective. But maybe that's the right way to approach something like this, which is inherently so much about your subjective experience of the world. And like maybe it's never going to be the sort of thing where we can randomly assign people to do it and see a result. And maybe that's OK. OK, I, so this is this is really interesting. I, I'm glad you brought this up because I think it's a cool argument. Um, and I'm down with it. I'm totally down with it. But then scientists should get out of the business of talking about it. Then scientists should stop putting the stamp of science on it. It's so hard to study. Um, it's so hard to define. Um, it's, uh, it's not clear what the effects are in 20 or 30 years of doing research on this. Um, and maybe, you know, I don't see scientists, for example, studying prayer, right? But a lot of people get benefit of prayer. A lot, I mean, and I, I don't want to say there's no scientists studying it, um, but it's not, it's not treated in the same way. 
right? Mindfulness has kind of got the stamp of science and therefore we should all do it. As opposed to like, yes, yeah, some people get benefit out of it. Um, some people get benefit out of reading the horoscope, right? And I don't want to compare this, but I mean like, it, okay, you like it. You enjoy it. You get something out of it. I don't want to take that away from you. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, I would add a little bit of a caveat to that, which is that it seems to me like there's some small group of like long-term meditators who really are remarkably different. And like, I'm just curious about those folks. And I don't care really whether the meditation made them that way or whether they were born that way, whether it's some combination. But like, look, this famous example of the monk who during the Vietnam War set himself on fire and just sat there and burned. And like, that is fucking crazy to me that anybody can do that. I want to know how that's possible for a human to do, right? So I'm interested in that. Hold on. Do you want to know how it's possible to kill yourself for a cause? To Well, to not experience any pain or like at least not to show. Okay. To not show it visibly. Like no matter how much I believe in a cause, if you light me on fire, I'm going to be like, fuck, that hurts. Right? And to just sit there and passively while you burn to death is just like that's so outside of my reality. Right? It's not that he lit himself on fire. It's his reaction to being lit on fire. Right? So I want to know how that happens. And even if it's like this is the 0.0001% of people who are ever capable of achieving that, I think it's kind of remarkable that it's possible at all. And I sort of would like to know more about that in the more in the way that I'd like to know about all sorts of like remarkable and unusual humans. Right? So that to me is like valuable in and of itself, even if it's not generalizable at all beyond that group. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's fair. It's, it, it's you, hear, you hear so often about people talking about, for example, the Dalai Lama, where they they just feel something about him, um, a remarkable human um, that, and again, who, who knows? Is, is, it, is it just the, the, the title that was bestowed on him? I'm not exactly sure, but I, I'm willing to bet that there's something actually special about him. And I'm also, I'm also willing to believe that um, that specialness is because of, you know, the meditation. Right. But that's like a very different orientation than like, well, this is something we can put in an app and it's going to have measurable benefits for, you know, your average person who does it for 10 minutes a day. That's right. That's right. Um, right. Because these are, you know, uh, you know, there's one tradition of, of meditation uh, study that examines, you know, these people, these monks, these monks who have been meditated, you know, been monks for, for 20 plus years, have meditated for how many thousands of hours, and then looked at the brains, for example. Um, well, fuck, I would hope that, like, you know, doing something for 20,000 hours is going to impact you t- t- to some extent. Um, but again, I, I think you and I agree that this is not a generalizable thing. Like, you know, I think Ariana Huffington is not, you know, trying to convince people to be monks. He's trying to convince people to meditate and, you know, do whatever app because with the promise of better productivity or being better at school or happier or better sleep or whatever it might be. And that's the part, it's the latter part that I'm pushing back against. Yeah. And that, I mean, this gets into a whole nother issue of like, well, what are you trying to achieve? And it seems so, I don't know how to, put it exactly vulgar or something to try and use this to be like more productive at work. You know what I mean? This is supposed to be about like enlightenment and becoming a more moral person and shit like that. And it's like, well, you know, if I could send more emails. Well, okay. We have to ask ourselves, why is Google, um, you know, in the mindfulness game? Why, why are they like kind of have, have this as part of like, you know, employee well-being? I mean, is it because they care about their employees? Uh, why are other companies doing it? Or is it because they think it might 
boost their cognitive control and make them better at their jobs, uh, less likely to burn out and better at their jobs. Again, maybe that's a cynical take, um, but I mean, businesses typically think of the bottom line. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. It's uh, the monetization of everything, you know? Yeah, yeah. All right, so we've demolished mindfulness. <laughs> hardly, hardly. Uh, uh, I mean, I just th- I think it's, I think it's useful to take a contrarian take on some of these things sometimes, even if I don't fully even believe some of the things I said, just to kind of have an exercise of like, okay, what would it take for me not to believe in this thing? Um, and I should say that I still study it. So I've got a, a student in my lab now who's doing a study on mindfulness and mind wandering. So I haven't like, you know, abandoned this, this notion. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it was helpful just kind of thinking about what, what would, you know, what are the negative points here? That's right. And if Sam Harris doesn't like it, then he can get in touch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Something tells me he doesn't give a shit. 